0: Good morning You may or may not be aware but there is a constant interplay between the preacher and those who are listening to him I wasn't asking for an amen but I am going to ask for a good morning good morning Thank you You may be wondering why I am here instead of Pastor Randy Anderson you may have shook his hand on the way in he got back late in the week, and it would have been almost cruelty to force him to prepare for this morning. So we had uh, planned ahead of time for me to take two weeks in a row. It's a privilege to be back with you again here this morning. Let's stand for our reading. We are going to complete First Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 9 is what we looked at last week, and we'll continue pulling the themes from verse 9 into verse 10 this morning. So what we will do is we will read 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we lift up our eyes in joy or in distress, and we wonder from where will my help come, we will answer with a stout heart. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Lord, you know the trials each one of us are enduring. You know how shallow our wisdom is to navigate those trials. You know how weak our strength is. You know how willing and unwilling our spirit is and how easily the body grows tired under anxieties and how distracted we become in our joys. We lift you up this morning as our keeper. You are the one who watches over us, who guards us, who protects us, who guides us, and we ask you to keep us from all evil as you have promised you would. We ask that you would guard us from evils that arise within our own hearts and would lead us astray. We ask that you would keep us from evils that appear to come out of the walls on every side and attack us from every direction. We pray as you have taught us to pray that you would keep us from the evil one. And Lord, this morning, as your churches gather, we, as your church, and so many others around this city, and around this nation and around the world. We pray that they would be beacons of the gospel where they would be proclaiming that you are the only one worth lifting our eyes up to because you are the only one who can and who will keep as you have said you would. So we pray that you would bless us this hour by speaking to us. This is one of the appointed means that you have given to us, that you will keep us from evil. We pray that you would bless us in the next hour during the Sunday school class, another way that you keep us from evil. And we pray that you would allow us to keep our eyes fixed on you, who guards our going out and our coming in, both this time, forth, and forevermore. We pray for your blessing in these ways, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we saw that the word of the Lord sounded forth from the Thessalonian church, and as it did, two things stood out as Paul heard third-hand, you might say, or at least heard what others seemed to notice was the message that the Thessalonians Sent out. First, what they noticed, what stood out to the apostles, is that they, as apostles, were recommended by the Thessalonian church to other people as worthy of being received as messengers of a divine message. The second thing that stood out was that the Thessalonians, either by their own report or by the observation of others, had turned to God from idols. Both of those things are in verse 9. They themselves report concerning us, the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols. They changed from following their own devised forms of worship and their own objects of obedience, which were satanically propagated ideas and activities, and they turned instead to follow the true and living God, who is worthy, who is able, reliable, infallible, and who offers a confident hope for better days. What idol can do that? Verse 10 completes the thought began in verse 9. So I'm keeping the same main point that we had last week because really the theme begins in verse 6. So the idea runs from verse 6 all the way through the end of verse 10. Imitating apostles includes promoting divine content as well as people, which are the apostles we discussed primarily last week, and a way of life consistent with that content. This morning, we will look at a way of life consistent with that content. We'll continue to do that. We began last week. We'll continue it this week. And then we are going to focus in on the content itself. And the reason that's important is because content informs lifestyle. Second Corinthians 10, verse 5. We destroy arguments... And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And what what a contrast is that, right? There is on the one hand arguments and lofty opinions. And on the other hand, there is knowledge of God. That's where we ended last week. We can know what God has said. There is a sure, infallible, reliable knowledge in the world because there's a God who speaks into the world. And we take every thought captive To obey Christ. Everyone thinks something. They might do it poorly, but they think something. That's content. Everyone has content. What we think is expressed by how we live. And what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 10.5, Take every thought captive... To obey. As we think, we are to think godly thoughts that will give rise to godly actions. John Piper once wrote, and I think he's dead on on this point most wrong living is the result of wrong thinking. Most wrong living is a result of wrong thinking. I had a friend once, a co worker, actually, who practiced jiu-jitsu for years and years and years. By the time I knew him, he had been practicing jiu-jitsu for over 10 years. And he said, when you get into a real fight, which as a bouncer and uh, waiter at a at a bar, he got into plenty of them. He said, when you get into a real fight, you resort to your lowest denominator of practice. So what your mind does and what your body does through repetition What it's repeated the most is what you're going to default to in an actual fight. You're not going to do the fanciest and coolest things you can do in a real fight. You go to the clumsiest, the most awkward movements that your body knows to do and your mind knows to do in the moment. Christian living is no different. When the pressure is turned on, we resort to the lowest thing we've got the most innate, the most natural thing we have. And what we are to do by constant practice and by constant thought is think good thoughts and live good lives so that when the pressure is turned on, we can actually plow through strengthened and motivated and driven by the content of the gospel. So the spring of thought should produce the stream of obedience. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. And the grammar in 1 Thessalonians 9 and 10 is significant on that point. So there are two things reported concerning the apostles, how they were received, and the Thessalonians turned to God from idols. But two things explain that turning to serve the living and true God and to await his Son from heaven. So, to serve and to await. Those are our first two points this morning. Turning to God means serving God. When Paul writes about the relationship between a Christian and God, he communicates... Above all, one aspect of that relationship, a slave to his master. You can look at the beginning of almost any single letter Paul wrote, and he will begin in the same sort of way he does in Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And the difference between a servant and a slave in this context is very, very small. Whether we want to translate it slave Or whether we want to translate it servant, the idea is the same. Paul is not his own. Every aspect of his life is governed by and directed toward someone else. Slave or servant doesn't matter. Now, grammatically inclined commentators are going to note how clumsy the syntax is of verse 9. You turn to God from idols to serve the living God. That's not neat grammar. It's kind of awkward and clumsy. But, while well, most of the commentators use that as a defense that Paul actually wrote the letter, pastorally there's something significant happening here. And what's happening is the way Paul words it, he does several things. First, he emphasizes God as the one who is greater than the idols from which they turn. So you turned to God from idols. And then God is mentioned again. So God becomes the focal point of the passage... The second thing that happens is it allows Paul to stress the fact of their service. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And that's the last thing that happens. It allows Paul to give strong and pointed articulation to two fitting attributes, that God is living and that God is true. They turned to serve the living God God is not a person, or God is a person. He is not an idea. He is not an ideology. He is not a hypothetical circumstance to be factored in in one of our possible futures. God is a person, not someone who we will merely meet when we die. God is not God of the dead. He's God of the living as the living God, whom we have to do with Now. God is the God of the living. And when we sit here right now, we're not primarily dealing with each other. We're not primarily, you're not primarily dealing with me. I'm not primarily dealing with you. We're dealing with God. And when you go home, whether it's after the service or whether you stay for Sunday school, you're dealing with God. When you're home and lying in bed, And thoughts hold you captive to either the good or the bad that's been going on, to the what could be or the what is, you're dealing with God. When you speak to someone else at school or at work or at home, you're dealing with God. He's the living God. When they turned to God, when the Thessalonians turned to God, they put themselves under his authority and under his influence, and most of our service to God is done through mundane, daily activities. Ephesians 4, 1-3. This is how we testify to the world that we serve God, not idols. Ephesians 4, 1-3. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How do you respond When conflict arises, especially if it's your image or ego on the line, do you default to humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love? That's hard to do. When someone has offended you, to bear with it patiently in love and to respond in a spirit of gentleness. As servants of the living God, we serve God by doing that. And as servants of the living God, we are not only governed by God, but we direct our lives toward God. The reason we respond by Ephesians 4, 1-3 isn't because it's going to work out better for us now. We don't play the short game. We do it because we want to hear well done, good and faithful servant. There is a God who watches that. There is a God who approves of that. And there is a God who will reward that. That's what we do it for. And now, all of the missed opportunities we have had to hear someone say to us, well done, or for us to say to someone else when it was deserved, well done, all of the sadness that results from those missed opportunities will just evaporate when God says, well done, good and faithful servant. And no matter whose applause we've heard, if God says, I have no pleasure in you, that applause won't matter. It will not matter how well we handled others, it will not matter how well we exerted our own rights, it won't matter how we got ahead and impressed other people if it doesn't please God. Contrast that to serving lifeless idols. Matthew 6.24 is the only time Jesus uses the verb form of serve or to be enslaved. Matthew 6.24, the only time. The verbal form of this word was on Jesus' lips in the Gospels. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve or offer services of enslavement to God and money. So just following that thought. Money as a lifeless and false god. What hope do you get from money? Just think about it for a minute. What joy does currency provide? It cannot take joy in you. It cannot commend you and share its joy in you with others. Money offers us no hope when we have it. All of the hope of money is when it leaves us. Money brings joy in its absence. God brings joy in his presence. God can rejoice over us. God will lead others to rejoice in one another. We serve the living God. And not only that, we serve the true God. Now, last week we talked about the assurance we have, but I have to bring this up one more time, that we serve the true God, because the content of the Christian life that's coming in verse 10 is just absolutely too absurd to believe if it was not spoken by the true God. And that's where we turn now. Turning to God means hoping in God's Son, the language of verse 10, and you turned to God to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son. So two things describe turning, to serve and to await. To await. The logic of verse 10 fascinates me because it's the reverse of the chronology of history, right? So historically, in Jesus' ministry, he bore the wrath of God, which comes at the end of verse 10, then he was resurrected, the middle of verse 10, and then he ascended to heaven, the beginning of verse 10. So what we await for is that reversal. We await for the descension from heaven, resurrection, and then, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath, the judgment of God, that is to come. And I hope that as you read verse 10, you can feel your heart swell a little bit more. The, the way Paul uses the language is not accidental. It is quite purposeful. Just, just listen to it. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to await for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus is only mentioned once, but when he is, the wave of relief that ought to wash over us is remarkable. And let's see if we can't get a sense of that as we read, because each line builds in tension as each of these particulars become more and more personal. Jesus Jesus descends from heaven. Fantastic. The whole world will see it. Jesus resurrects the dead. I, I take part in that. And then Jesus rescues from the wrath to come. That's me, if we are what we sang about this morning. But all of this, Jesus is the focal point of our faith and the particular of our hope. So let's then examine the absurdity of our faith. But before we do, maybe one more word. This is the content of the faith. And when other people, through the Thessalonians' missionary and evangelistic work, remembered what they heard about the Thessalonians, notice what isn't there. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Jesus died on the cross and he was thinking of you. Or, God loves you so much he sent Jesus to die for you. Some of those things may be true. God's love is implied. We, as individuals, are implied. But that's not what stuck out to those who heard the message from the Thessalonians. What they heard was their hope of God's impending worldwide work in human history that will touch every individual for all eternity. And the focus of the content is Jesus, Jesus' return, resurrection from the dead, and wrath. That is the content of missionary and evangelistic work. Central in that Both in our text and thematically, is resurrection. First line of verse 10 to await his son from heaven. God is the true God, and we await his son from heaven. That God is true is significant. It's not a lie, it's not a fantasy, it's not even a possibility. God has said Jesus will return, he will return. And God is the living God. He's not bound by a system of timing. God is a person with all of the surprises, spontaneity, and self-determination that make someone a joy and a mystery to know. That's God. And if he's the living God who could send an angel to Zechariah with no warning whatsoever, could he not, without warning, send Jesus back from heaven? Suddenly? unexpectedly, Isn't that the point of the parables that Jesus gives about himself in the Gospels? Blessed are those who stay awake. You don't know when he's coming. If you knew when he's coming, you'd be prepared for it. But you don't know when he's coming. God does not follow a system. He's not waiting for any condition that he has revealed to us on earth before Jesus comes back. We're not waiting for the, next, for the last 7,400 people groups, as we've defined it, to be evangelized before Jesus comes in his own message. He said, all of these things that I've told you about that need to happen before I come back, they'll be done before this generation passes away. Wait for me. Also, we have never been given a guarantee that we will not see Jesus before we die. Now, in turning to wait for Jesus, I tend to give a lot more thought to my possible death than to Jesus's sure return. Why does my death occupy more of my thought than Jesus' return? I believe them both equally, so I say. But my conclusion is this. The more I prioritize my Concerns for my well being, the less I prioritize my thoughts and my concerns according to the way my master, whom I serve, tells me to prioritize my concerns. That's a ridiculously simple conclusion, right? Two objects can't fill the same space at the same time. Either I'm working for my master, awaiting his return, or I'm concerned about myself and what will occupy my days. And it's easy to slip into the idea that Christianity is a system of doctrines. Wonderful system of doctrines. I love the system of doctrines. And it is that. But if we leave it at that and it becomes somewhat impersonal, I slip into the unconscious thinking that God is not the living God whom I have to deal with now. So, let's just simply ask the question, what occupies the higher position of your hope? Do you hope that your life now will get better? That God will ease the burden? Is your hope that you'll be released from your burden, painful as it is, through death, and all will be put right, or at least you won't have to deal with what's gone wrong, or is your highest hope Jesus' return? What occupies the higher position of your love? Your entrance into glory, or Jesus' return in glory? 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, Paul I'm going to say this before we read the text. Paul recognizes his impending death. He doesn't deny that. He even mentions it. But notice what he does in light of it. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. In other words, Paul saying, I am about to die. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not the day of his death, the day of Jesus' return. He will award to me the crown on that day, and not only to me, But also to all who have loved his appearing. Not to have waited for heaven. To those who have loved his appearing. He anticipates the crown, not after he dies, when Jesus returns. The crown is promised not to all of those who hope in Christ for something good after death, but to those who love his appearing. And why would Paul say it that way? What is so significant about the appearing of Christ, that that is what Paul centers on. First, Paul does not commend those who love the reward, but those who love the rewarder. The appearing is loved because it's his. That's different than, I hope to see my loved ones after I die. First Thessalonians 1.10 we await His Son from heaven. Psalm 73, 24-26, to 26, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 16, verse 5, and then we'll jump down to verse 11 because it brings it out. I think, well, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. We do not wait for heaven. We wait for the living and true Jesus. Because there is nothing distinctively Christian about hoping for heaven. There is everything, distinctively Christian, about waiting for Jesus. There are two different things. Anyone can fantasize about heaven. Who waits for Jesus to descend from heaven? That's Christians. Give the world a Christian hope. Jesus descending From heaven. Second line, second reason to love is appearing, he brings with him resurrection and judgment. We await the one who not only has been raised from the dead, whom God raised from the dead, but the one who raises us up as well. We've already said it's when the master returns and he settles accounts with his servants that he says, well done. Scripture uses the impending return of Christ far more often than it uses my death as a motivation for godly living. More certain than my death is Jesus' return, and more hopeful than being unclothed is being fully clothed in glory at Jesus' return. And like Psalm 16 now, this resurrection, our second line, whom he raised from the dead, resurrection, and all of the pleasures at God's right hand are good and true and genuine pleasures in and of themselves. They're good things. I love food. Food is a good thing and glorious thing good in itself but what makes them really pleasurable in Psalm 16 is that they are enjoyed in God's presence what makes resurrection glorious and wonderful is that it is in Jesus' presence resurrection in this line certainly reminds us of our hope we await his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. We can't help but think of our hope. But Paul's point is the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection. And he does the exact same thing here as he does in Acts 17, verses 29 to 31. This is instructive. Acts 17, starting in verse 29. Paul speaking to the Athenians. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. I love the allusion to idolatry, the, the clarity of idolatry there and in 1 Thessalonians 9. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent that is, to turn, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The whole Christian faith hinges on this one reality, Jesus' resurrection. No matter who you are, No matter where you live, no matter when you live, you have to reckon with that fact. You may deny it, you may put it out of mind, it doesn't change the fact. You may disbelieve the fact. You say, I don't think Jesus actually took back his body and is alive physically. That's just kind of crazy. Then eat, drink, and be merry and don't give it a second thought. But, if the living God, who gives us all life and breath and everything, can bring Jesus back from the dead, you better account for that fact, and if Jesus is raised, then fear and turn to him as the living and true God, but consider the absurdity of believing for just a moment. One man, out of the scores of billions to ever live, one man was crucified for sin. How would you know? That's not tangible. You can't empirically discover that. One man was resurrected after three days. Taking back and inhabiting his own body. Who's ever heard of such a thing? Has that ever happened? He ascended into heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God, and from where he will come again. Where in space is he? And he will come to judge the living and the dead. What arrogance! Whose standard is he going to use anyway? And can he actually do that? Is it possible for those scores of billions to ever live to come before this one man and receive goat, sheep, goat, sheep, goat, sheep, goat, sheep? Well done, I never knew you. Well done, I never knew you. Is that possible? For good reason, Jesus' resurrection... And judgment are the two things most ridiculed from the beginning. Acts 17, verse 32, right where we left off. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, I think with a little bit of skepticism and perhaps some, that could be, we will hear you again about this. Or take Second Peter 3, 3 and 4. Know this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued on, since they were from the beginning of creation. But Jesus' return and Jesus' resurrection... Are not disbelieved for lack of evidence they're overlooked. Verse five of Second Peter three: "For they deliberately overlook this fact, the fact of judgment, in this case, of the drowning of the world back in Noah's day. It is a fact overlooked, not a possibility disbelieved. Don't overlook the fact. Don't overlook the fact. If God is the living God, why should this not be true? Why should it not be so? And the fact is that Jesus is that one man, crucified for sin, resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven, from where he will descend and judge the world back to 1st Thessalonians verse 10 and consider its context this is the word that sounded forth when you talk to other people about the christian faith what do they walk away hearing from you this is what those who heard the thessalonians walked away hearing jesus will descend we await his son was resurrected from the dead, and who rescues us from the coming wrath. Faith trusts the reality of wrath. Before we can hope for rescue, we have to squarely face the reality and the righteousness of wrath. I hope you sense a theme. The reality of wrath is grounded in God as the living God. It's tragic that when we talk about the Christian faith, we often emphasize the courtroom aspect of it because a courtroom is rather impersonal. It needs to be, right? Typically, the more we understand someone's plight, the more likely we are to pity them even in their bad decisions. Knowing someone on a personal level would not help our justice system and it doesn't help us. But it's not so with God. God doesn't rely on a ledger or on second-hand account. There is no paper between us and God and if we refuse the person who he, he has appointed to advocate for us, there is no one between him and us. And he judges us not because he doesn't know us, he judges us because he does. God's wrath is not impersonal and it's not merely legalistic. There is a legal component to it But God's wrath is personal. He judges us because he does know. It's not a cold, calculated, mechanical, or indifferent, or mere formality of a judgment. It is a judgment of someone who is upset, who is scorned, who's reached himself out continuously and endlessly to bring people back, and they say to that, no, It is endless love scorned and glory diminished. That's personal. It's rejection of a person, not merely a system of doctrines. And it provokes wrath. God knows us as sinners. And when we put ourselves under Jesus, he's the one who rescues us from that. So there's a reality to wrath. God is the righteous God, the living God, but there's also a righteousness to it because God is a true God. God will reveal this world to be as he's created it to be, a place where his goodness is enjoyed and God and those made in his image are celebrated over. Think of it this way. Justice is the exposure of truth and aligning what is to what ought to be. Justice is the exposure of truth, God's the true God, and aligning what is to what ought to be. Justice requires wrath because... Unrighteousness is a suppression of the truth, and when the truth gets suppressed, people get hurt. Think of it this Romans 1. Let's go to Romans 1. Paul makes this so plain. Romans 1, starting in verse 18. And we're going to jump around just a little bit, but I'm doing it to connect the theme that is already there. Romans 1, verse 18. And notice the themes related to wrath... Suppression of the truth and the exposure of truth and the harm that comes in the suppression of truth. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now jump down to verse 28 to 32. Paul describes the world in which we live. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Do you want to live in that world? That's the world you live in. Do you want to be someone who is on the receiving end of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, slanders, foolishness, arrogance? That's the world in which we live. And if God is going to expose this world to be as he has created it to be, Jesus' dissension is the interruption in all of that. If God is righteous, he can't let people live in that condition indefinitely because he can't let people do that indefinitely. God will stop evil, and if he is going to stop evil... Wrath has to come. Think of the suffering that is imposed on you by others. Is it not right for God to afflict those who afflict you? Is it not right to reward evil people with the work of their own hands? And isn't that what wrath is? All suffering requires a response of wrath. Why is there cancer, rebellion, broken relationships? Why is there liver disease and heart attacks? Why is there blindness? Why are there earthquakes and famines and droughts and floods? It's because there's sin in the world, right? Isn't wrath putting all of those things right? Wrath is an element of our hope as much as our own resurrection, as much as anything else is. And because God's wrath is coming, and it's coming against every wrongdoing, and against every sin, against every iniquity, thought or done, every sin is going to be dealt with in Christ. Or in you, let it be in Christ, the one rescuing us from the wrath of God. Isaiah 18, Isaiah 1, 18 to 20. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the goodness of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Our Father, you have the last word and you always will have the last word. You are righteous. You are holy. You cannot look on iniquity and we shelter ourselves under the shadow and the wings of Christ who redeems us, who rescues us, who delivers us from the coming wrath. And Father, as we go about our days, and as we aim to be those who make disciples in our community, Father, let us align our message to the one that you have delivered, that Jesus will come again, that there will be resurrection, and we know there has been because Jesus has been resurrected, and that he will bring with him judgment. Lord, we thank you for this judgment. We thank you that we are rescued from it and that we will live in an eternity where you have put all the wrongs right. Our hope is in you and in no one and nothing else. We praise you because we will not be ashamed in this hope now or forevermore. Amen.